because what I wanted to do is go back uh, and do a bit of uh, uh, a reflection on uh, the meaning of life. Uh, and you might say, oh, no, not again. He's going to go from Genesis to Revelation. Yes, you're absolutely right. That's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to start in Genesis. And yes, I'm going to finish in Revelation. So why don't you turn with me to the book of Genesis and in chapter 2. Uh, and let's uh, think about some of uh, these things. Because I got to think this week as I contemplated some of the events of the last couple of the week and uh, weeks and uh, you know the injuries and uh, the vanity and vexation of life as I've uh, uh, recall the Bible teaches me about and uh, and saw some of that around about me and contemplated my own uh, volunteer, volunteering myself to the anaesthetist and the surgeon again this week, which will be great fun. Uh, and then I, I, I thought also, well, gee, you know, I've decided uh, in the last couple of weeks I'm going to retire from the end of April and uh, not be involved in full-time work and started thinking about all these radical things that are uh, happening in my own life. And I thought, well, gee, it would be good to just make sure uh, I've got all those things set. So it's not that I've got doubts about how important it is to have uh, access to God and uh, a, a firm belief in his word, not for a moment, uh, but I think it's healthy to remind ourselves what it means. And I started to think about the garden. Uh, you might remember there was a, a garden that was planted eastward of Eden, I'm told, in Genesis chapter 2. And I thought about this garden. I thought, well, why on earth does the Lord talk about a garden? Um, and, uh, and, of course, it might well be that there was a literal garden uh, somewhere in Mesopotamia or some other place. And uh, maybe that uh, was a literal place where uh, these people were and where God had dealings with mankind. I don't want to go into any of that. I just want to ask myself, what does it mean that God introduces me in the context of a scenario that involves individuals having to work out how they dealt with the, uh, 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 the freedom to choose that, that God had given them and how they dealt with their lives and how they uh, dealt with the opportunity to have access and the risk of having separation from God. And indeed, uh, as we're introduced to the story in Genesis chapter 2, uh, where this garden there, and of course, there being a garden, you would expect some trees Right, and we got trees in this garden, uh, we are told. So it tells us that the Lord God planted in verse 8 of chapter 2 in Genesis, a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, straight away, that says to me that some of these trees may not be literal trees. Maybe they symbolize something. And as I've said before, there is uh, uh, no uh, literal tree that I'm aware of uh, with literal fruit uh, that has knowledge here and evil there or good and evil. And uh, I mean, that's not a, a, a literal thing. There's a symbolism that is... Uh, uh, being taught us here. And there's an analogy for us to uh, draw some significant meanings uh, uh, in our lives from the scenario that involves these trees. And, um, and we, this, these verses tell us that God uh, made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight, good for food. There was also a tree that was identified as the tree of life in the middle of the garden, and that there was also a tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
We're also told in this, uh, and let's define it or describe it as an Edenic, Edenic state, right? Because it's in Eden, so we'll call it Edenic, right? An ideal, perhaps uh, a state of being uh, for us to uh, contemplate in our lives where we have this uh, a scenario where God has established us to be able to survive and given us access to all of his wonderful creation around about us and invited us to partake of the, uh, the goodness, the things that are pleasant to the sight, the things that are good for food that will sustain us, all of these things that God has established uh, uh, in our state of being. Uh, uh, we recognize that not everything in God's creation in this garden was to be treated the same because it tells us in verse 16 of chapter 2, it says, the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Now, one might wonder that if you were creating an Edenic state for a creation of uh, mankind, why on earth you would create something that was dangerous? Uh, that indeed, uh, uh, if you were to partake of it, you would surely die. Now, the interesting uh, aspect of that, and it comes out a bit more as the story plays out, is that there is uh, a, a key aspect of God's dealings with mankind and of his, uh, both his creation of uh, mankind and his willingness to be part of their lives that he gives them the choice to choose, the choice to choose. That doesn't quite sound right, does it? No. He gives them the opportunity to choose and the power to choose. He gives them the authority to do so. And indeed, not only invites them to choose, he instructs them to do so. And it puts, puts them in a state where they have to choose. And that's life. It doesn't matter how Edenic or perfect or imperfect it might be uh, in any particular scenario in which we find ourselves, we must choose and we have an opportunity and an obligation to do so. And so we have this particular tree. I, I, I'm suggesting to you it's not a, a literal tree, but bear in mind trees are an important uh, part of the analogy of the Garden of Eden. I Think about what a tree is. Think about how it starts. Think about the small seed. Think about the, uh, the, the environment in which it must uh, uh, exist in order to, uh, to, to start to grow and to germinate and, and, and to build itself into this lasting, strong uh, piece of organic being uh, that is able to withstand the elements around about and do more than that, uh, is able to provide things for those who would live with the tree. Uh, and whether it be for the food or whether it be for, because it's pleasant to the sight or uh, uh, whether it's uh, to be able to provide uh, a shelter from the elements, all of those things are embodied within this image of a tree, within the garden, within the state of being in which we are and in which we live. And so these people, Adam and Eve, we're told, were permitted to eat. Remember, it says they may eat. They were permitted to eat of every tree of the garden, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For with that came a consequence. In the day that you eat, you shall surely die. So we see that, as, as I've already said, in God's creation, in the state that even uh, might be described as an Edenic state, uh, 
there were trees that were pleasant to the sight. There were trees that were good to sustain us, for food, to sustain us physically. There was a, a tree of life that would uh, open up all of the possibilities uh, uh, of spirit, spiritual life and eternal life. Uh, there was a tree of knowledge of good and evil. There are trees which may be eaten, and there was one which shall not, and which, if eaten, should lead to death. Now, Genesis doesn't, chapter 2, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on uh, the different trees, but I did want to spend a bit of time on the tree of life. Uh, that's good because, you know, maybe that's uh, a happy ending uh, sort of promise, right? Because uh, embodied within the uh, concept of life is something, well, we all want life, don't we? Uh, life is something that we, we seek. It, it, it's built into us. Uh, we've got this yearning, this hunger the, to, to contend with the challenges around about us so that we might survive, so that we might live. Uh, and there is here a tree of life. And Genesis chapter 2 here, when it introduces that tree to us, doesn't actually explain to us the characteristics or the function of the tree of life. But thankfully, we can glean that a bit from Genesis chapter 3. So let's go to Genesis chapter 3. Pick it up here in verse 22, and you will note that I'm just glossing over the detail of the story here because there's a lot of detail in there. But here in Genesis chapter 3 and in verse 22, it says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us. This is uh, after they had partaken of the tree which they were not to take, right? So they had uh, partaken of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God uh, said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, something had to happen. Right? So it sort of leaves you hanging there at the end of that verse. Right? It says, it says um, uh, lest he put forth his hand, so exercise choice and uh, ability to partake, of the tree of life. Notice, by the way, it calls it the tree of life. It's not a tree of life. It's the tree of life. And we'll come back to that uh, a little later. Uh, and eat and live forever. So there's a consequence of partaking of the tree of life within the imagery uh, that we see in these chapters of Genesis and with the within the Garden of Eden. Because if you partake of the tree of life, there is a, an opportunity to eat it and to live forever. We're not used to that, are we? We don't live forever. I don't live forever. You don't live forever. We all die. That's the state of our physical being. And yet we see here within God's uh, plan for man's dealings with God, there was to be, with access to God, an ability to partake of the tree of life. And it would allow you to live forever. So, in verse 23, it says, uh, in consequence of uh, this concern that uh, uh, they would partake of the tree of life, God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden uh, and to, to till the ground from whence he was taken. So there was this expulsion from this Edenic garden. And he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to do what? To keep or protect the way of the tree of life. Again, the tree of life. So something was to be guarded and, and to be isolated from mankind as a consequence of their sin. 
as a consequence of their willingness to exercise the choice that they had to partake of that which they were instructed not to take. And uh, they were to be uh, kept away from the tree of life and all that was embodied within that. So having disobeyed God, and after succumbing to the temptation of uh, the apparent virtues uh, in the tree of knowledge of good and evil, man was to be denied the continuing access to the tree of life, lest man put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Whenever we speak of man here, by the way, I know we get a bit hung up over it in the, the modern world and the modern language. It speaks of man and woman, right? It's a, uh, you're all in this together uh, as far as this is concerned. Uh, and uh, uh, that's what's being conveyed here. And partaking or eating of the tree of life signifies accessing something that allows us to live forever. And the consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve was that immediate access to that opportunity was to be denied us. There was to be a separation from God, which meant that they would not have access to the tree of God, the tree of life. Now that uh, speaks, of course, not of uh, just a physical or a mortal life, but it speaks of a spiritual or an immortal life. I mean, the concept of living forever in this body, please don't let me do it, right? And uh, I just couldn't handle it, right? And uh, maybe your body's better than mine and you can handle it. Well, no, no, no. There's something different being sp uh, spoken of when it speaks of eternal life. It's not talking about this flesh and blood. It's not talking about these bones and muscles and everything else that works so wonderfully when it works so wonderfully, um, but not so when it does it. Right? Uh, uh, it's uh, uh, we uh, uh, when it speaks of eternal life here. It's talking about a, a spiritual state that is different to that which we're used to uh, in this physical or mortal life that we all enjoy. Uh, there are other trees within the, that were in the garden that were good for physical life. They were good for food, for example, and we all need that. Uh, we uh, love our food, don't we, particularly if it's got a chocolate element to it. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, there are things that we love and there are things that we need and uh, they're, they're available for us and they're good for our physical lives. And of course, uh, one, another one of those trees was to yield a change that would ultimately lead to death tree of knowledge of good and evil. But the tree of life, and only the tree of life, was to provide for eternal life. And that's different to just providing for physical life. We all have to deal with physical lives. We all have to deal with our physical needs. But it is different to feed on something that will give to us the promise of eternal life, to feed the spiritual side of life. And interestingly, the tree of life is only mentioned in the book of Genesis and Revelation, the first and last books of the Bible. And uh, so we are introduced to the uh, uh, opportunity to have a relationship with God who has created the uh, uh, universe and uh, all that we can see. Uh, and then uh, within that context, uh, something uh, that was available but ultimately eludes us uh, is identified. And then back in, when we get to Revelation, we see the tree of life mentioned again. Now, that may be the reason for this, and this is my theory at least, and you can take it for as, as you will, is that Genesis is intended to introduce us to the concept and the possibility of eternal life 
And Revelation is to speak of the future opportunity that lies with the promise of the tree of life. The rest of the Bible, and this is where, oh, it's not there anymore. Uh, this is where uh, uh, Pastor Darrell's slide uh, fitted in quite well, I thought, uh, uh, where this uh, 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 state of being in that missing verse uh, is uh, uh, really something that the rest of the Bible uh, focuses on. It focuses on bridging the gap between the natural and the spiritual, between having access to and being separated from our God. If we have access to God, then we have access to the tree of eternal life. Uh, if we are separated from God, then that denies us the access to eternal life, and we re remain mortal and subject to death. And one of the key outcomes uh, and lessons of the story of Adam and Eve uh, is that there is a separation from God that results from sin and disobedience that denies the full potential of having access to God. In other words, there's a consequence of sin. Our actions matter, and we bear responsibility for them. Now, if that isn't a key lesson of life, I'm not sure uh, what is. Uh, because uh, people so often forget that that is the way life is constructed, is that we have choices to take actions, but there is always a consequence and a responsibility that we bear in respect of those actions. The strength and the promise of the Bible is that reconciliation and restoration is possible, and there is a way to once again overcome uh, separation and to secure access to God. And you might say, well, didn't Pastor Darrell just cover that in Psalm 145? Well, yes, he did, but he told us to go home and read it tonight, and we will. Uh, but uh, you'll just have to put up with me for a little bit longer as uh, I explore that. Now, I said there was only ever references to, to the tree of life in Genesis and Revelation. But the idea of life is, of course, around and uh, let's go to a few different other phrases, right? So uh, we're told about the breath of life, which speaks of a, a physical uh, uh, sustaining influence uh, on our well-being. So in, in Genesis, we're told that there was a breath of life. We're told that it came from God, uh, and it gives our, our physical bodies physical life. So in Genesis 2, verse 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 17, Behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. Speaking at the time of the flood, of course. Genesis chapter 7 and verse 15, And they went into, uh, in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. There's this sustaining breath that gives us physical life. And in Genesis 7 and verse 22, it says, All in whose nostrils was the breath of life of all that was in the dry land and died. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced a time when you can't breathe. Well, it's no fun, right? Uh, you tend to panic when you can't breathe, right? Your body goes into a state that says, it's not, this is not supposed to happen, Right. And uh, there might be something physical up here or down here or out there that is preventing you 
from being able to breathe. And it is a bad experience. I'm not going to tell you that I've done it in first. Well, yes, I have, right? I've had first experience that no fun, right? Uh, and uh, just try doing it uh, for a minute uh, and see what it does to your state of well-being, right? Not good to be not be able to breathe, right? And the breath of life is part of what God has made available. One of the things that we, uh, I think, are always in awe of is just how calculated this earth is to give us a sustaining environment for life. Now, I know we mess it up, but I know we're, you know, we're all concerned quite rightly about uh, what mankind uh, uh, does to that environment, uh, but uh, this is calculated to allow us to live. Uh, that's what God created when he created this uh, place, this, this ball in space that happens to be at the right spot at the right angle and uh, with gravity doing its right stuff. Uh, all of that, uh, which we're told about in the science classes, it's wonderfully calculated to sustain life. The breath of life God has breathed into our nostrils, right? And we can enjoy it as part of life. Now, even though we only had the tree of life in Genesis and Revelation, as I said before, there are many references to the virtues and events in life that act as a tree of life. So in Proverbs chapter 3, you might turn with me here. And Proverbs, of course, uh, speak often of uh, the concept of wisdom uh, as distinct from mere knowledge. Uh, it speaks of wisdom and understanding. Uh, and in uh, Proverbs chapter 3, it says in verse 13, that happy is the man that finds wisdom and the man that gets understanding. For the merchandise of it is better than the merchandise of silver and the gain thereof than fine gold. Now, interesting there is it, it puts wisdom here uh, against merchandise, against things, against things to which we ascribe value in life, whether that be of silver or of gold, which are used here uh, in the Proverbs to, uh, to indicate things that are given a lot of monetary value. Right? Well, wisdom, it says here, is better than that. And if you wanted to buy something that was worth buying, then buy wisdom and understanding and uh, uh, get it to work and influence your life in a way that silver and gold never will. She is more precious, we're told, even than rubies, and all things that you can desire are not to be compared unto her, that is, unto wisdom. Length of days is in her right hand, and in her left hand riches and honour. Her ways are the ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her, and happy is everyone that retains her. So if you want to have uh, a, a, a state of life that is worth living, then build it upon some wisdom and understanding. That doesn't mean to say get the imagination of your mind uh, uh, cogs working to come up with what you think is the right philosophy of life, but rather it says uh, uh, learn, uh, hear, and do the word that is built in wisdom. And the Bible's teaching, of course, is that the uh, font of all that wisdom is indeed the Word of God, because it is the Word of God that was there at the beginning, it is the Word of God that sustains us along the journey, and it is the Word of God that will be there forever. And uh, uh, that is our, our, um, our font of wisdom in that sense. In Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 30, just to uh, continue on a tree of life, 
Uh, it tells us of the fruit of the righteous here. Uh, in verse 30 of Proverbs 11, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that wins souls is wise. So in other words, you can bring and influence life in a positive way uh, if you uh, allow the fruit of the righteous to be a product of what you do in your life, so that you choose the actions that you uh, are engaged in uh, that uh, are calculated to help uh, and to uh, bring life uh, not only to yourself, but to those around about you. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. In, in Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 12, it speaks of hope, but not hope deferred, but hope realized. It says here, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. So uh, bringing a, a hope to fruition in your life is something that we all get a buzz of that. You know, you, you've got this thing that you're really uh, hoping for, expecting in the future. And when it comes, wow, you know, it just gives you that little buzz, right? Well, those little buzzes are worth having in life. To set a realistic expectation or a goal in your life, uh, something in which you might hope uh, for the outcome to play your way and then to realize it and to along the way to be working uh, toward it uh, so that that goal can be achieved. There's no, there's no harm in that, uh, the Bible says, particularly if it combines with the other th uh, instructions about the fruit of the righteous and wisdom uh, working in our lives. In Proverbs chapter 15, it talks about what comes out of your mouth. Uh, and uh, it says here uh, in Proverbs 15 and verse 4 uh, that a wholesome tongue is a tree of life. So what we say uh, can uh, fuel life. And also, as we're warned in other parts of the scriptures, it can undermine it. Uh, but perverseness therein is a breach in the spirit. Right? A perverse tongue is not a good idea. Right? And uh, frankly, we all have a tongue that is uh, a bit unruly at times. And uh, we've all said things that we would have been better not to have said. Uh, here, it says, let's get a wholesome tongue because it'll act like a tree of life to people. It will inspire them, spur them on, make them joyful. It will uh, ins help instruct them. It can do so many good things to have a wholesome tongue. So having a, a tongue that is active, but in a wholesome kind of way, is something that is worth having in life. Indeed, it's a tree of life. In other words, these are ways in which in this life, as mortal as it is, we may yield results that can work to everlasting life. Because if we grasp hold of the wisdom and understanding that is on offer to us, if we recognize that uh, doing things in our life and obtaining and allowing the fruit of, righteous, of the righteous to work in our life, uh, if we realize that uh, uh, hope that uh, is realized and the wholesome tongue can all work together uh, as a tree of life to influence our lives in a positive way, then that's worth pursuing. There are other examples, of course, of different terms uh, that are used to describe a source of life. Uh, variously, they're described in the Bible as a fountain of life, bread of life, water of life, uh, the path of life, and even the spirit of life. And just quickly, yes, still got time, in, uh, let's look at the fountain of life. Psalm 36. I know that we, we're flipping through the verses today. Please excuse me. Uh, you're welcome to sit back and listen to these verses, but here we go. Psalm 36 and verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light shall we see light. 
And the psalmist here declares God's presence uh, and with God is a fountain of life. What is a fountain in this context? Do you think about it in terms of the water? It's not like that cool pond that Pastor Darrell told us about earlier. It's not the pondering pond, right? It is the, uh, yeah, that spring of life uh, that comes with the fountain uh, of the water as it bubbles and says, hey, come and drink me because I'm worth drinking, right? Water's good stuff, right? Uh, water is so sustaining. And, uh, and as we all know, uh, in addition to the air we spoke of earlier, uh, we need our water, uh, otherwise we can't survive. And with God is a fountain of life. And in Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 14, uh, it speaks of the law of the wise. Uh, and it says, the law of the wise is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. All right? uh, again, a great analogy uh, as to how uh, important it is uh, to have uh, wisdom working in our life, in this case, uh, with an analogy toward a fountain of life. The fear of the Lord in Proverbs 14 and verse 27, is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. So the law of the wise, being a fountain of life, uh, uh, allows us to depart from the snares of death. Similarly, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. The bread of life, John chapter 6, verse 35 says, Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. And when Jesus speaks, and of course uh, this whole concept of being the bread of life, of being something that somebody ate, uh, caused some consternation. They said, well, we can't eat your body. What are you talking about? We can't eat you, right? Uh, And uh, uh, people thought this is a bit of a strange teaching uh, that was going on about here. But Whenever that analogy comes out, it emphasizes that even though we need bread to sustain us physically, we need also a bread that sustains us spiritually. We need the bread of life, and that's Jesus, he says. And he that comes to me shall never hunger if we feed on the bread of life. And he that believes on me shall never thirst as the water of life, as we'll go on to see. And in verse 48 of chapter 6 in John, he says, I am that bread of life. So if there's any doubt about it, he emphasized it here. Uh, There is a sustaining food available spiritually, and it is available through Jesus. The water of life. All right, well, we're in Revelation already, and yet we're not even finished. Isn't that funny? All right. But in, uh, in Revelation chapter 21, he said unto me, In verse 6, he said unto me, it is done. So this is toward the end of Revelation 2, so you would have thought I would have finished here, but I'm talking about the water of life, and I'm not yet finished. Uh, It says, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. I think we sing sing a song uh, about that, uh, about the fountain of life that is freely available uh, to us to drink from. In the path of life, in Psalm 16, don't turn to it, in Psalm 16 and verse 11, it says, You will show me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures for more. You know, there are some uh, uh, routes that we can take in our lives that lead to life and are fairly described as a path of life. 
There are many uh, routes that we can take in life that are not a path of love, that lead to destruction. And we're told here uh, that God will show us the path of life. Uh, in his presence, in God's presence, his fullness of joy, and at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Let's be part of a journey that takes us along that path. In Proverbs 5 and verse 6, it says, Lest you should ponder the path of life, her ways are movable, that you cannot know them. Right? Life's journey goes like this all over the shop in the path of life. Right? And we can't work it out in advance. You can't just plug it into the GPS and say, take this route. It'll get you there uh, most safely and most... Now, of course, we're given very strong guidance. We've already spoken about that uh, in the word itself that should guide us. Uh, and indeed, that provides a very good platform for the way we approach it. But there is always variation in the detail that is available in the particular route and the path that we might take in the life that we lead. And that's the nature of life. And that means you need to make choices and those choices are thrust upon you. And it means you need to do so in a way that is guided by the sort of wisdom that we've been talking about today. And then finally, the spirit of life. In Romans chapter 8, and maybe you can talk, uh, turn with me to Romans 8 because we're going to spend a bit of time in this chapter. It says in verse 2 of uh, Romans chapter 8, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Uh, that which bound me within this mortal and physical state uh, is released by the law of the spirit of life. Uh, and indeed in Revelation 11 and verse 11, don't turn there because we'll be in Romans 8 for a while, uh, we're told that after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them. There is a great spirit of life that is available and we have an opportunity to have God bring that presence into our lives. The ultimate issue must be, I think, to secure permanent and secure access to God who otherwise seems to be a bit of a mystery to the world. Uh, far away, missing, even locked out. In other words, we need access to the tree of life. Life should not just be about pursuing a path of life or a tree of life or just life. Sure, we need to live a life, but we are given an opportunity to partake of the tree of life, which is different in its nature because it doesn't just sustain us physically, it does so spiritually. So let's read all of Romans chapter 8. Cheeky. Yep, there it all is. All right, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore no judgment, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Now, straight away, this chapter reminds us that there is a difference between the natural and the spiritual. It uses the word flesh, right? and it, uh, it's emphasizing to us uh, that uh, you know, we have an opportunity not just to walk after the natural way of things, uh, but after the spirit for the law of the spirit of life in christ jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death so there is a way that leads to death there is a way that leads to life and the spirit of life has made us free from that uh, which uh, 
is fairly described as the law of sin and death. For what the law, he is speaking of the Old Testament law, could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Now, this is talking about reconciliation. Uh, This is talking about uh, moving ourselves from a a position where the tree of life is locked away from us and to give us an opportunity to partake of it again. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. You're getting the message here that there's something to do with the spirit that's important in this message here. Um, that it's all very well to invest in those things that are, uh, provide some physical return, but we need to invest in that which provides spiritual return. For to be carnally minded, ultimately, it tells us here in verse 6, is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, right? That's what caused the separation in the first place, right? It's, there's this gap between us. Uh, It's an enmity. It's opposed to our God. For it is not subject to the law of God, and neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwells in you. Ah, I have an opportunity to have God's spirit dwell in me. And we know the story from elsewhere that we do have that opportunity. Uh, We're encouraged to understand that as we repent or are willing to change direction in our lives, if we in obedience are baptized, he will fill us with the Holy Spirit, with all of the power that goes with it and all of the influence that the Uh, that spirit can have in our lives. If so be that the spirit of God dwells in you, we're told we are not in the flesh. Doesn't mean to say we haven't got a body. Yep, still got it, right? Uh, But we are in the the spirit. Now, if any man had not the spirit of Christ, then he is none of his. You haven't even started the journey without God's spirit, is what it tells us here. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by a spirit that dwells in you. Wow, that's a victory, right? It's a, a victory over death, and that's what we're promised. And so even though death comes uh, within the natural state that we have, there is a victory uh, there where we can be raised up uh, from the dead as our mortal bodies are quickened by the spirit that dwells in us. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, and we owe something, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, then they are the children or sons of God. For For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Right? He is our Father. He is the one who's caring for us. And uh, uh, we have received a spirit that adopts us within his household. The spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so, be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I reckon that the the sufferings of this present time 
are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And all the people said. I mean, how, how powerful a verse is that? I, I reckon, and it's good that he speaks in Oz language here, right? I reckon that what we're going through today, and even those things that are properly seen as sufferings, they're not worthy to be compared with what he describes here as glory, which shall be revealed in us. For the, ex- the earnest expectation, right, that we really want this expectation of the creature waits for the manifestation of the children of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly. It's not your fault uh, that uh, uh, there is vanity in life. But by reason of him, that is God, who has subjected the same in hope. He's given us hope and he has subjected us to that hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. How true is this? How true is this that we uh, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we groan within ourselves sometimes and say, boy, I I can't wait for the day for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. But we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. But what a man sees What does he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it? Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. We have a Spirit within us, and it prays for us. We can pray in the understanding, but we can pray in the Spirit. We can pray in tongues. We can let the Spirit pray for us. Uh, and it will do so, uh, and uh, it will make intercession for us. And he that searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things, how many things? All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. That's a great promise. That's the one you put up on your fridge, isn't it? And uh, uh, and we can praise him for that. Um, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? How about this? If God before us, who can be against us? Okay, we'll say that. We'll say that. And all the people said, because if God can be for us, then who can be against us? And he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? And remember that the chapter started with the promise that there is now therefore no condemnation to them in Christ Jesus. And so it says here, who is he that condemns? 
It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, nakedness or peril or sore? Not a bad list. Any of those things going to separate us from the love of God? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. There is a victory built upon the tree of life that transcends even this life. And that's a promise to us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And all the people said, I said I was going to finish in Revelation, but I think I'll finish there because I touched on Revelation before and then I. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you.